Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, how was it for you? Possibly the most underwhelming political debate in the history of political debates. By all accounts, the first televised encounter between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn was a no-score draw. And that's probably about as good as it gets. Far more exciting was the news uh, that Tottenham Hotspur had actually fired Maurizio Pochettino and hired Jose Mourinho. Uh, the Prime Minister was disappointingly clunky, Jeremy Corbyn was better than expected, and the whooping from the partisan audience was awful. And no one is any the wiser about the leader of the opposition's personal position on Brexit or Boris's trustability factor. Daily Express this morning has got a front-page headline uh, that says he refused to answer the question about whether he was in favour of leaving the European Union or staying in it nine times. Count them. We'll be analysing the aftermath with Professor Tim Bale and we'll be asking you what you made of it as well because, after all, you are the people that count. You are the people whose voices we want to hear because you are going to be the people that elect the next government of this country. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we'll be talking to Security Minister Brandon Lewis who's launching the Conservatives' Victims of Crime proposals, including a £15 million fund they're going to set up for rape victims. Also, we'll be exploring all the breaches of cyber security in the election campaign so far. And we'll be taking a peek at the further fallout that's happening uh, after the Prince Andrew interview. Believe it or not, there are some people who think he's going to do another one. Another interview, that is. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Lots of things to talk about this morning. Lots of uh, analysis is going to come in about the uh, election uh, debate from last night. It was an interesting-looking set. Um, it seemed as though neither of the candidates had much time to answer any of the questions. It certainly seemed as though, as we predicted, uh, Boris Johnson was going to probe Jeremy Corbyn on his, uh, his, his line on Brexit, his personal belief about uh, whether or not he wants to stay in the European Union or leave it. He refused to answer that question, as John McDonnell suggested to us that that would happen yesterday. Uh, and 
and I think that was probably the only downside for Jeremy Corbyn. Most people scored it about 52 uh, to uh, 48 or 51 to 49, uh, which is eerily similar, of course, to the uh, result of the referendum in 2016. Um, but generally speaking, Corbyn did a lot better and Boris did a lot worse. Simple as that, really. Let's ask Professor Tim Bell uh, from UK and a Changing Europe to find out what he made of it all. Tim, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Would you say that that was a pretty fair estimate of what happened in terms of... Uh, uh, it was a kind of a no-score draw. There's nothing particularly memorable that came out of it. Um, and probably you would say Corbyn did better than expected and Boris did worse. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too down on Boris Johnson on this. I mean, he did get his main messages across, if you like, which was, you know, I'll get Brexit done and Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really uh, have a position on his position. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, given that that was, you know, the Tory message, I, I think, you know, he, he did manage to get that. Although the repetition of it, I think, did become a bit ridiculous and a bit tiresome. And that's why, actually, you know, it provoked quite a lot of derision from the audience, I think, after a while. Yes, but I suppose... Suppose, from your point of view about Boris, he would have said that as many times as he did in order for it to sort of resonate and for it to sink in, for people to talk about how ridiculous it was that he asked the same question so many times because he wants us to remember that there was no answer. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And, of course, we do assume that everybody is going to sit through the whole thing and therefore saw him do it again and again and again. Whereas some people, if they, you know, manage to grit their teeth and, uh, and watch it at all, will only have watched it for 10 minutes or so and, uh, and therefore a bit of repetition doesn't do any harm in that respect. No, I mean, those poor characters like you and I, uh, Tim, who have to sit through the whole thing, um, I literally can't think of anything that made me sort of sit up and take notice. I think my favourite moment, maybe, was when uh, one particular audience member asked the question about, you know, how ridiculous it's been over the last three years and how terrible we have been in terms of uh, of our democracy and the leadership uh, problem and the fact that people have been so sort of frustrated by the way the politicians have been behaving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the audience in some senses, and people who said this, was the real winner. You've got a real sense of, you know, the disconnect that people feel with both of these guys, really. Um, you know, neither of them exactly provide a role model, I think, for... Uh, for the electorate, and, and you know, it will be, I, I suspect, like this election, rather than a beauty contest, an ugly contest, really. Yes, no, I think It'll so. about, you know, which, uh, which party, you know, you, you, you oppose least in, in some ways. Yeah. I, I mean, back to Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, I, clearly, you know, he was always, in some ways, at an advantage here, simply because people know Boris Johnson and probably know a little bit less about um, Jeremy Corbyn and see him less than Boris Johnson. And, and as long as he didn't turn up and, you know, trip over his shoelaces, um, you know, people were going to get a slightly more favourable impression of him than perhaps they, they had before. But his refusal to answer that question, I mean, you know, was very, very obvious. The other thing I would say, however, and, and I think, you know, as we've got more debates uh, coming up, I do think the TV um, people do have to think about how they handle politicians simply talking over mm. uh, the moderator and sort of blustering away. And Boris Johnson in particular was guilty of that. You know, he just did not keep to time. And rather than just sort of turning his mic off, um, you know, they let him keep going. And I'm not sure that's a good way to do it. But, you know, you as a talk radio presenter may have more... <laughs> More, well, uh, I, I just, did, I just interrupt that. people and shout them down. It's as simple <laughs> as that, really. But, I mean, the thing is, I think it's difficult to turn microphones off. And I think, to be fair to, to both of them, both Boris and to Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the, 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 the allotted time for answering a lot of the questions seemed quite short. And, and, and Julie Etchingham seemed to jump in quite quickly. 
Yeah, she did. And I mean, there, there's also a question, isn't there, about whether, you know, you want as much audience participation as you actually um, got there, whether it would be better to leave it to the journalists to ask a few more, you know, follow-up and forensic questions. But, um, you know, as a, as a spectacle, as you say, I mean, it wasn't particularly uh, enlightening. Uh, you know, it wasn't even particularly uh, entertaining. But uh, I think a no-school draw, as you say, is probably the best uh, the best summary. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to a bit of it. We've got a clip here uh, of the audience actually laughing laughing at Boris Johnson. Does the truth matter in this election? I think it does. And I, I think it's very important. <laughs> I think it's very important to hear from... I've been very clear about the deal that I've done. Does that tell you that the, the, the sort of the, 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 the music that the Labour Party have been playing, that Boris Johnson is untrustworthy, is kind of getting through? I think so, but then there is also the question of whether actually voters care that much about it. I mean, clearly they don't like the fact that you know they don't really trust either of these guys, just yeah. that they don't trust politicians. But whether it will actually make a difference to who they vote for, I'm not sure. It's almost you know to coin that cliche, priced in as far as Boris Johnson is concerned. Uh, you know, and, and trustworthiness perhaps doesn't matter as much to voters as, for example, decisiveness or or even to some extent likability. And that's where, of course, um, Johnson scores much higher. Than Corbyn. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people said Jeremy Corbyn looked less energetic uh, than the last time the debates were held back in 2017. To be honest, I can't remember that far back, so I'll have to ask you uh, if that's correct or not. Well, I think 2017, I mean, was really a bit of a revelation for some people about Jeremy Corbyn because, you know, he was barnstorming all over the country, doing these huge rallies, and he did look really up for it. But a lot of people have said, you know, it's much more low wattage this time around. He's a bit older, maybe. He's done it before, not quite got the enthusiasm. And to be honest, if he's looking at the opinion polls, he must. He must, if he's honest with himself, you know, think that the Labour Party's in big trouble. Yeah. A lot of people who were watching it and, and commenting on Twitter were making um, remarks about his glasses as well, because he started, came out without wearing glasses. He then put the glasses on. They appeared to be um, very unevenly balanced in terms of what one was. One had a huge, thick piece of glass and one didn't. I mean, I sympathise with that because I have one eye which works better than the other. Um, but, you know, a lot of people were sort of focusing on that and saying, you know, why doesn't he wear better glasses? I mean, it tells you about the way that people see these things, doesn't it? Well, no, you make a really good point there because, you know, we are we all have, you know, hidden depths of shallowness, don't we? Yeah, and, uh, oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, you know, people's, um, people can make up their mind about people, A, quite quickly, and B, you know, on the optics of the thing. And mm. I, I do agree. One thing Boris Johnson did do, I think, was look, uh, you know, straight down the barrel of the camera quite often, you know, so look at the uh, audience in the living room. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn, you couldn't actually quite see his eyes, and that was a little bit odd. I yeah. mean, you know, you, you didn't really feel he was kind of making eye contact uh, in a way that the, the Johnson was. Now, you know, of course you can dismiss all this stuff, uh, but, you know, that kind of body language, who knows, it can make a difference. Yeah, exactly right. And as far as the actual um, sort of audience was concerned, it seemed very partisan. I don't know how they put that audience together. Um, you and I are going to be appearing a panel uh, tomorrow night, which we'll talk about in a little while. I'll give it a decent plug. Um, but it's a very partisan audience, wasn't it? It was almost an American-style kind of whooping and cheering whenever, you know, their man was saying something they liked. And then, and then sort of, you know, the opposite happens when, when your, opposite, or your opposite number says something. Yeah, and I suspect that has to do with ITV not wanting a kind of, you know, sterile atmosphere. And uh, You know, I don't quite know how the audience were warmed up before, but you're quite right to say, you know, that they were really the ones that were providing the electricity and the, the energy in the room because neither Corbyn nor Johnson themselves were actually giving us much in that respect. 
Yeah, no, absolutely right. And so, I mean, that's the first one sort of underway, if you like. Um, there will be others. Um, I thought also afterwards, the kind of the, the, the second division sort of debate, which wasn't, really wasn't worth doing, you know, with a the, with the lesser broadcaster, uh, with the, the people uh, who were assembled around that, Joe Swinson um, and, of course, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and uh, the Greens leader, whose name I can't remember, and, uh, and Nigel Farage. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, the number of people watching that must have been fairly small. I think it was only kind of four million for the main debate. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you can see why those leaders, you know, particularly Swinton and Surgeon, are so angry about being excluded from, from the main debate. Uh, and to be honest, you know, you can see why you can see why uh, ITV did it. You can see why the BBC want those kind of head-to-heads, you know, because these are the two guys who might be prime ministers. But actually, I think a few more people in the room might have, you know, actually produced a few more sparks, to be honest. So I'm just wondering if they really feel that they've got that right, the broadcast. Yeah, I don't know, really. I mean, my feeling is that if there's more of them, it's even more kind of um, convoluted and, and, and they have even less time well, to, to yeah. answer the questions. And yeah, I mean, I'm that, just casting my mind back to that awful debate that Emily Maitlis hosted with the five um, Tory leader candidates which was just horrendous. Yeah, no, you, you've got a point there. I mean, you know, there are trade-offs to make. Uh, maybe the, the kind of clarity that you get from two people, you know, is, is, is something to be prized. So I'm not sure. I mean, seven, seven's a crowd. You might get away with three, maybe. I think that might be a bit better, you know. And, and, and the, the one that everybody remembers and probably did make a bit of a difference was the, you know, the Nick Clegg um, yes. one with uh, David Cameron and Gordon Brown. You know, that worked reasonably well um, and that created a bit of a surprise and a bit of energy, but certainly, you know, last night's, you know, was nothing on that. It really wasn't. It was very disappointing from Boris's point of view. Did you not think, I know you say he got quite a few of his points across, but, you know, this is a guy who we're told constantly is very much the, the, the sort of the, the, the debater uh, in chief. He knows exactly how to run campaigns. He gets very galvanised by, by the actual election campaign itself. I thought he was quite flat, really. He was quite muted. I mean, maybe he's tired, I don't know. I mean, he never performs quite as well as people expect him to. If you think about those Tory leaders debates, mm. he didn't do particularly well there either, no. to be honest. And and Corbyn, I mean... So where does he get this reputation from, then? Well, <laughs> Oh, I got it. Could it be from the newspapers that support the Conservative Party? I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, he's he's in some ways he's better giving a speech than he is... Uh, generally speaking, when it's a more kind of interactive uh, thing, but you know, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe maybe he's uh, he's tired. Maybe he's just off his game. Uh, you know, and he might up it next time around. Yeah, right. So, I mean, overall, I suppose, um, who would be happier this morning? Would it be Corbyn's camp or would it be Boris Johnson's camp? Do you know, I think, you know, partly because of what you said, it being a no-score draw, I think both will be reasonably happy. I mean, Corbyn, you know, will, I guess, be disappointed that he didn't make some game-changing intervention. But the fact that he didn't, you know, make any mistakes and and didn't look a complete idiot, you know, and was on a par with... uh, Johnson, I guess, is, is good for him. And, and once again, you know, to reiterate, although it was very boring for those of us who had to watch the whole thing, Johnson <laughs> did get across his points, you know, uh, on several occasions. I mean, if you were to look at the papers this morning, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to work out what had happened, really, because the Times has got neck and neck after TV clash. Uh, the Express has got uh, Corbyn dodges Brexit question nine times. Laughable Mr Corbyn, says the Daily Mail. Uh, and uh, uh, Boris has made a laughing stock on the Daily Mirror. So take your pick, really. Yeah, take your pick. I mean, you know, whether these this will make very much difference, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, the, you know, we'll be looking maybe over the next few days, political nurse, to see if there's some move in the polling. 
can't see that happening, to be honest. I mean, Johnson, you know, and the Conservatives are, are quite a long way ahead. I'm not sure that Corbyn did anything that's going to change that. No, I think you're probably right. Now, let's get on to more pressing matters, which is this uh, panel that you and I are appearing on tomorrow night with the headline, Britain's Angriest Election Question. Well, I can't for the life of me uh, wonder why they've asked me to come to this. <laughs> I mean, I'm not well, angry at I... all. <laughs> No, uh, but, you know, you, you perhaps deal with a few listeners who are. So you've got some <laughs> it's true. To that. That, might be the, <laughs> that might be why they've got you as, as uh, well as the rest of us on. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think we've got to the point where, you know, we, we're obsessed with the idea of anger now and, and forget that actually elections in some ways are supposed to generate a little bit of passion. Mm. You know, as long as the thing doesn't get completely out of hand, is that such a bad thing? Because these are serious issues that we're... Um, considering, I mean, obviously, you know, if it comes to blows, um, you know, well, or let's hope not. particularly, yeah, <laughs> not tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, if it gets particularly poisonous, this election campaign, that will be a problem. But I, I think we need to be a bit careful that we don't go overboard and think that everything, you know, in some golden age was conducted in some incredibly yes. civilized way. You know, we all shook hands afterwards, and uh, you know, everything was. Uh, you know, um, fair and honourable. It's never really been like that, to be honest. No, and I've also detected a kind of um, a dialing down in some ways of the anger since the election's actually been called, because I think a lot of the anger was frustration more than it was anger, that here we were sort of, you know, three and a half years after the fact, still not leaving the European Union, not looking anything like getting close to leaving the European Union. And I think people are now seeing, because there's actually uh, a ballot that they can go and vote in on December the 12th, that they can see some kind of um, you know, movement on it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, in some ways, people have talked, haven't they, about this election feeling rather flat. And yeah. that perhaps could be, you know, what you're talking about there. In other words, you know, we've been so angry for so long that now we've actually got a chance to kind of vent it. <laughs> we're not really taking the opportunity because we're all, we're all tired of that. I mean, who knows? Things could get angry you know, uh, over the next few weeks. But it doesn't strike me that this is a, you know, particularly kind of passionately for election compared to others. No, uh, but, see. But, uh, but I mean, we certainly don't think anyway that after last night, there's that much change, really. No, I think I think that's that's the thing. No game changer, and I think you put it really well. No score draw. Okay, Tim. Well, I'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks very much indeed, Tim Bale. There, Professor uh, Tim Bale, of course, who is from uh, UK in a changing Europe. He's going to be joining me uh, and some other speakers at uh, a debate tomorrow night, which is at uh, Bush House in London part of King's College London, uh, really, really near the uh, uh, Holborn Tube Station. If you plan, for that, plan to come along, have a look at my Twitter. Uh, I'll put it on Facebook as well uh, if you want to come along. Uh, it is actually free to come and see it, would you believe? What better value than that can you imagine? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, many of you have wanted to speak about the debate from last night. A lot of people didn't particularly like the format. A lot of people didn't particularly like the short space of time that each candidate seemed to have uh, to answer the questions. A lot of people made remarks about Jeremy Corbyn's glasses, bizarrely. Uh, but nobody really landed any major punches. So if there is going to be more of these debates, I think they sort of need to ratchet up uh, the energy levels or something. Or, you know, the kind of the shaking of the hands and the the pleasantries at the end. You know, I'm not quite sure all of that works either, but let's get your views on it uh, and we'll hear from you throughout the course of the show today. 03444991000. Let's though now talk to Brandon Lewis, who is of course the Securities Minister uh, for the Tory party. Uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about the debate later on, but let's start off first of all uh, about a new um, programme of things which are being announced today. Uh, an ambitious package of measures to support the victims of crime. Brandon, a very good morning to you. 
Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about this um, uh, this package that you've put together, including £15 million as a cash injection to support the police uh, and the CPS in handling rape cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's quite a wide-ranging package. There's the money you've just mentioned, which goes in to ensure that we are able to do more and speed up that process, particularly because now the more complicated and detailed the forensic work is, that the police and CPS have got that investment so there has to be more cases forward more quickly. But also we're looking at parole reform, a proper root and branch review of that to make sure that victims, the media can apply to attend parole hearings. So there'll be much more transparency about parole. We want to increase the victim surcharge so that those um, abhorrent offenders will pay about 25% more, which goes into supporting refugees and community support for the victims of domestic and sexual abuse. We also want to enshrine people's rights uh, the victims' rights in law, and so we'll bring forward a victims' law, and that will be on top of, in the first Queen's speech, the bringing back the domestic abuse bill and Helen's law as well. So a really holistic package of things to ensure that we're looking after victims and bringing criminals to justice. I mean, the court system already has a kind of, um, you know, victim's impact situation going on where the victim is allowed to make a statement and, and sometimes the victim can get some kind of uh, retribution from, from that or, or some kind of money as well. Do you think that that's worked or has it just not really been effective enough? Well, it has worked. And there's about 35 million has come in through that um, surcharge, but we want to increase it. You know, we just think it's right to look at whether it's worked, whether we can do more. We think we can do more, make sure that those abhorrent criminals who commit these kind of just dreadful crimes uh, are paying their fair due to make sure that victims can get more support, whether it's the victims themselves directly in terms of support they get through refugees, refugees as well that, that uh, they can use, um, just to make sure that we're doing everything we can. So there's a whole package and building on what we've already done and going further. And what about the uh, the question of, of rape cases? Because often people say, um, you know, one of the difficulties, obviously, in prosecuting rape cases is an awful lot of it comes down to hearsay at the time. I've been interested to watch that case. Uh, it's a murder case, actually, in um, uh, in Australia, where the, the, the guy who is supposedly accused of the crime remains anonymous until such time as the case is over and his name presumably is, is made public if he, is, if he is found guilty. Would you move anywhere close to that kind of system in this country, do you think? Well, that's not part of this package at the moment. This, in terms of the money into the police and CPS, is about speeding up the charging decisions, expanding the digital forensic capacity. But, and this is one of the things we have to always keep under review. There's, there's, a, there's a balance to find. Now, here at the moment, our police still find that the majority of cases, when an um, accused name is public, then often they'll find more witnesses and potentially more victims coming forward. But we've also got to get the balance right. As we all know, there's been some examples of some very high-profile cases where people have been found to be innocent, falsely accused. That is an, a, a dreadful situation to be in. My heart goes out to them, but we have also got to make sure, and this is where the balance point is so important, we, are, we have a system that brings these vile criminals, when they have committed these kind of offences, to justice and gives victims the, not just the support that they need, but the confidence that justice will be done. So we always keep these things under review, but we're not planning on changing that in this package at the moment. OK, parole reform is an interesting one as well, because an awful lot of people feel uh, that the parole system is not fit for purpose, that people are released uh, when they shouldn't be. Uh, they are kind of uh, recommended to be released on the, on the grounds of a psychologist saying that they're OK now. I'm thinking, of course, of, of John Warboys and the Black Cab Rapist, yeah. who would have been out of jail now had it not been for the very brave... Uh, a, a legal review that was sought by two actual individuals who were victims of his. Yeah, absolutely. And I know somebody who was um, uh, a victim and involved in that case. Yeah. So I've, 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 it was a dreadful example of where things have gone wrong. And we've got to make sure that kind of situation 
can never happen again. And that's why we're going to have this rude and branch review. We want to make sure that victims are notified of parole hearings and because those decisions affect them. And so we want to open up this system much more and allow victims to have the ability, if they want to, to attend hearings for the first time. So it's a much more transparent process because this is one of those crimes, not just the bombing in itself, but the long-term impact it has on people. We've got to recognise the impact it has on victims and make sure that victims are the ones who are properly supported um, and can see justice is being properly done. And obviously, you know, this is a victim's a charter, if you like, but what would you say to those who are kind of concerned and maybe a bit nervous about handing justice to victims? Because the whole point originally of justice was that it was supposed to be neutral. It was supposed to not be uh, about revenge or retribution of any kind from those who had suffered. Yeah, and that's an absolutely fair point. That's why it's always important. Our judiciary is independent and has that ability to make the decisions. What we're doing through this is a mixture, a package that means that, first of all, we can bring people to justice more quickly, but that the system is more transparent so victims can see justice being done. They can have access to that and know what is happening. I think that is important. But the point around victims is making sure primarily they've got the support that they need, that criminals are paying towards that and the victims have got that support that they properly need. Part of that is transparency. So it's not putting the judgment in the hands of victims, it's making sure transparency is there and support is there for the victims when they need it. OK. Let's talk a little bit about what happened last night in terms of the debate. Um, it seemed a little bit flat to me. I don't think anybody particularly scored any major points. Obviously, um, a lot of the papers picking up on Jeremy Corbyn the nine times he refused to answer the question about uh, whether we wanted to stay in the European Union or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Boris was a little bit, uh, I would say, underperforming, wasn't he? Uh, well, actually, no, it's slightly unsurprisingly, Mike, I'd probably disagree with you on that, <laughs> as shocking as that may be. Look, my view of it, I, I watched it live last night, I think the difference in the energy and the enthusiasm and the positivity the Prime Minister compared to what I thought was a pretty tired-looking um, Jeremy Corbyn, I thought was clear. I actually think you're absolutely right. The key issue of our day is Brexit. We've got to get this done, get it delivered, so we can get on to the other issues. And actually, only Boris Johnson and we in the Conservative Party offer a solution to that, that by the end of January, we can move on to other issues. Corbyn again last night, not only failed to answer where he stands on this, but confirmed that we're going to have a year of dither and delay with more referendums, one that he, he doesn't even know what he's going to do at the end of it. I mean, it's a ridiculous situation. So I think there was a clear difference between them and a, and a very clear choice on December the 12th as a result of that. And whose bright idea was it to change the, uh, the Twitter account to Fact Check UK? Has anybody worked <laughs> out who that was yet? Well, yeah. No, I mean, first of all, it still said at CCHQ Press. There was no misunderstanding where it was. And I think it was absolutely right that we were calling out, even in his opening statement, Jeremy Corbyn made factual errors, should we say. Um, some might say he lied in his opening statement. And us calling that out, I think, is entirely right and appropriate. And I think most of your listeners will be more focused on the issues rather than rather a bit of a Twitter storm about nothing, I think, in terms of a bit of fun and highlighting um, where the facts are wrong when they're put out by Labour and what the true facts are. And do you worry that the way that the, 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 the sort of the, the reporting of the debate from last night appears to give Jeremy Corbyn a lead in a way, I know that he's not leading in the polls, but appears to give him a lead in a way because it looks as though he is, in fact, the man who could be the next Prime Minister because the, 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 the Tory party are putting him in, or framing him in that, in that light? Well, I mean, the, the, the reality is we all have a decision as individual voters on December the 12th. Do we want Jeremy Corbyn with another year of dither and delay in his background as a security minister, I have to say I am genuinely fearful of what he and Diane Abbott as Home Secretary would do for our security and the safety of our nation. Or Boris Johnson, who's got a solution on Brexit, a plan for our domestic public services and infrastructure. Um, so that is the fact of the decision we have to make on December the 12th. But I think the, the instant new poll last night showed that 
Boris came out ahead of that. And as I say, I think his energy, his drive, his enthusiasm last night was, was there for us all to see. OK, Brandon Lewis, thank you very much indeed. Brandon Lewis, Security Minister and candidate uh, for Great Yarmouth, as well as Brandon Lewis, also in Great Yarmouth, standing are Anne-Marie Killett from the Green Party, Margaret McMahon-Morris from the Independent, uh, Adrian Paul Myers, also Independent, Mike Smith-Clare, Labour Party, James Joyce for the Liberal Democrats, and Dave Harding from the Veterans and People's Party. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've all seen, I suppose, our parents growing into old age. My, my mother, personally, um, is 95 years of age. She lives in America. She's still completely and utterly compensated. She can't do all the things that she used to be able to do. But 95 is some age, and she certainly doesn't show any signs uh, of not making it to 100, as far as I can tell. More and more people are living well into their 80s. More and more people are living healthily well into their 70s and being quite active in uh, that sort of age. So uh, according to uh, a report that's come out now, um, state pension age might have to start creeping up as far as 70. Let's get some uh, information on this from Sir Steve Webb. So Steve, a very good afternoon to you. Hello there, Mike. Good thanks, afternoon. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for uh, for talking to us. I mean, it's an interesting subject, this, to me, because it encompasses all manner of things. It's all, you know, you, you, when you talk about people uh, reaching the age of 70 or 75, you start to think about the social care implications, maybe working much later uh, in life than you would have previously thought you were going to, and also just the way that the government has to plan for paying state pensions for much longer. That's right. It is a very big shift. I mean, the state pension age of 65 for men was set 100 years ago. Right. And we, ha- we, you know, it is literally only in the last year or two that started to go up. So in many ways, the system hasn't kept pace with the sorts of things you're talking about. And whilst, you know, we won't hit a pension age of 70 for people who are in their 50s, my kids are in their early 20s. If, if their pension age isn't something like 70, I'll be surprised. But that's because they think they'll live to, you know, 95 or something. Yeah, well, exactly. And, I mean, what are the cost implications? I know that may be not quite a difficult question for me to ask you to put your finger on, but, I mean, <laughs> if people are living, say, 10 years longer than they used to, then that's an awfully large amount of money for the state to find, isn't it? 
It, it is. And funnily enough, the big bills, I mean, clearly pensions is part of it, um, but health is by far the biggest. I, yes. mean, I think my own parents are in their sort of mid to late 80s. And every week's phone call is a litany of GP appointments, hospital appointments and so on. And yes. actually, you know, funnily enough, I mean, not being sort of blunt about it, if you just kind of drop dead, that's quite cheap from the state's point of view. Yeah. But if you have a long, you know, something like dementia that you live with for five, six, seven years, the bills, you know, and of course we should pay these bills, we should look after people, but the, the bills do rise very quickly in those last years. Yeah, well, without wishing to add to, to, to what people might have been cringing when they heard you say that, I mean, that was one of the things that people said about the smoking population, which is now impressively yeah. diminished down to nothing, but when a lot more people smoked, they didn't live as long, and so they didn't that, have to be yeah. cared for and or paid for. That's right. And I mean, I, I guess in, in this conversation, we have to be slightly careful of averages because, of course, although on average, the average 70-year-old is as healthy as the average 65-year-old, clearly there's a big difference for some people. You know, if you had a, a tough manual job or, you know, lifestyle issues, a whole raft of reasons, some people obviously drag the average down. And, and we have to have policies that are sensitive to that. We can't just say, well, you know, because most people are all right, we've all got to work till we drop sort of thing. So I think you do need a bit of balance in all of this. And there's a bit of confusion as well. I mean, I was talking to uh, a Lib Dem candidate the other day about their policy on uh, the sort of skills wallet that they talked about and how they wanted to give an amount of money to certain people at certain ages throughout their life, should they wish to kind of take advantage of education in some way, shape or form. And I asked her why it stopped at 55, because a lot of people now, say, for example, get to 60, maybe 65, they think about changing um, their lifestyle, perhaps. They think about doing a course at university, maybe, or learning to paint, or, you know, something like that. Um, and it's in, there's a kind of disconnect, it seems to me, between those of us who have to think about ageing parents and, and even our own old age, and politicians who are kind of frightened of embracing that. Yeah, I suspect that was just going to keep the cost down. But, yes, you're right. So if, you, if you're an employer and you employ somebody aged 60, they will probably stay with the company longer than if you employ someone aged 21. So, you know, sometimes employers are sort of, oh, well, is there any point investing in older workers? You know, you know, what's the point in training them? But actually, you get probably get a better return on investing in an older worker who's going to be loyal, who's going to be committed, who's going to stay. Uh, you know, of course, we need to train young people, but actually, you know, younger people move around a lot, yes. whereas older workers probably are going to stay with you. And, and the other thing, I guess, is a lot of the folk we're talking about may themselves be caring for elderly relatives, that kind of thing, many yes. women in particular. And I think employers who get this right will reap the reward. You know, if you employ women in their 50s and early 60s and treat them fairly and give them flexibility to look after their parents, yeah. they are going to be very loyal, very committed. You know, you're not going to lose their skills permanently. Um, and that's something employers haven't really had to think about. No, sure. I mean, funnily enough, in America, they've actually got positive discrimination for women over a certain age to be employed in big companies. And if you don't have a requisite sort of number of those people, uh, you're required to hire them, which I think is a good thing. Well, and employers are just going to have to change their attitudes because, I mean, literally the number of kind of under 35 in the workforce is actually going down yeah. with low birth rates and so on. The number of over 50s is going to go up. And actually, if you don't harness the skills of older workers, you know, A, that's bad, bad news for you as a business. And the other thing is the people buying your products are probably in that age group as well. So, you know, simple example, you know, kid, you know teenagers, youngsters, design products for people with good eyesight and who can cope with fitted little stuff. Well, I don't know about you. I'm in my mid-50s. Mm. I've got my glasses on all the time. I like big stuff I can see. And, <laughs> you know, if you, if you employ people who understand that, who actually are of that age group themselves and know what that age group wants, then you're going to do well as a business. Yeah, of course. And is the falling birth rate a worry for sort of future governments in terms of the taxable um, population as well? 
Very much so. And that's part of the reason why the pension age is going to have to go up, because basically the working population's taxes are paying for today's pensions. There's no sort of money set aside in the state fund. It's this year's pensions being paid for by this year's taxes. So I mean, given given all the money that's being uh, thrown around at the moment in this election, uh, wouldn't you think that (laughs) somebody might actually say, you know what, why don't we try and throw some of this at the pension uh, fund? Because it's it's actually in, in need of a bit of a boost. Well, I guess the thing is this thing called the triple lock on the state pension they talk about. Yeah. And actually, pretty much all the parties, I suspect, will sign up for that. And that does give the state pension a pretty worthwhile boost each year. And, that, you know, that comes at a bill. That, that, that'll have to be found. Yeah, no, of course. And, I mean, the reason we're having this conversation, uh, Steve, is because the national, the Office for National Statistics has actually said that they are no longer considering people as old at 65. I mean, I don't know what that actually means for those of, those of us who are reaching that age or for those people who feel quite young at the age of 65 or 67. There's no doubt that, that people are more active now than they used to be, right? Definitely, yeah. And I mean, what they used to do is they used to talk about, you know, the burden of an ageing population and so on, and they measure how many workers there were for every pensioner, and they count workers as under 65. Well, as this is saying, there's now over a million people working past 65, some of them because they have to, because they just can't afford to retire, but some of them because they want to. They enjoy the work, they enjoy a bit of extra income, they enjoy the social side, you know. And I think working on if you enjoy it is great. Working on if you're forced to because you can't afford to retire is not so much fun. No, that's absolutely right. And so, I mean, as far as people's kind of plans are concerned, um, when all's said and done, I mean, there's been a, a move for quite a few people to go. I mean, my own mother lives abroad, but my sister lives in, in the same place as well. Um, are, are, you, are we going to see more people kind of moving abroad to live somewhere cheaper because Britain will become more expensive? And if you are going to live longer, it maybe it's a good idea to, 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 to sort of... Uh, shuffle off and go somewhere cheaper um we may see some of that although you have to be quite careful about things like paying for health care and social care when you're very elderly because mm. we kind of take it you know we take the nhs for granted well if you go and live in another country and you know you've got to be pretty sure that you're going to get health care when you're very elderly if you've moved into the country late in life and so you certainly have to do your homework before you think about doing something like that but it will also presumably make people think twice about i mean i've got a daughter who's who's in her 20s i mean doesn't even have a clue about a pension at this point in time but i keep saying to her well you should probably get one because if you're going to need to supply money to yourself over the course of 25 maybe 30 years you're going to need quite a big pension (laughs) That's right. So I think for the, you know, as I say, my, my kids in their early 20s, the good thing is that any time they get a job, the law says the employer has to put them in a pension yeah. as long as they earn more than 10K. So that gets them started. They're going to be working longer than we did. You know, there's no question about that. But they're also going to be retired for longer because, you know, other things being equal. So it's a matter of, I always say pensions sometimes, you know, people wag their fingers and tell you off for not doing it. I look at it on its choice. You know, if you put money aside, then you can choose when you retire. If you don't have a pot of money, then you have to go on working because you've got no choice, really. So, it, you know, yes, you can spend the money now, but that might mean you have less choice later. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. So, Steve Webb, thank you very much indeed. Former Pensions Minister, uh, now Director of Policy at Royal London. I mean, do you now feel as though you have to absolutely earn um, not only as much money as you can while you're working, but you have to try and now put away even more money because you're likely to be needing a longer period of time to be sustainable economically, financially, because you won't be able to work, but you'll be alive for a lot longer than you thought you might have been. 
0344 If you've got elderly parents that you have to look after as well, tell us how that works. We'll take your calls. We've got loads of calls to take. We're here, of course, all the way through until one o'clock when Matthew Wright takes over. Uh, you are listening to Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. We are your election station. This feeling deep inside of me Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me when you hold me in your arms so tight. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 1000 We've been talking about pensions with Sir Steve Webb, former pensions minister. Uh, and we're going to go to the calls now because a lot of you have got some interesting stories to tell us here. Now, Donna Harvey is going to join us shortly as well to uh, tell us about Prince Andrew. Apparently, um, a new piece of information has been discovered uh, that there was some time when he was on that famous trip to New York when he was staying with uh, Epstein that he was alone, apparently, unaccompanied for a couple of hours. And people are suggesting that was about the same time uh, that he was being accused uh, of being with that young woman uh, who said that she had uh, sex with him three times. So let's talk to uh, Karen in Lowestoft, who wants to talk to us about pensions. Hi, Karen. Hello, how Hi. are you today? Yeah, very well indeed, thank you. Thanks for calling. You've got a story for us. Yeah, really and truly, I mean, what's happened to me has happened to a lot of women in my age group. I'm now 63. Right. But back in the day, we was made to leave school, the people of my age group, at 15. And we didn't have a chance when we was at school. I mean, the schools were thoroughly overcrowded. I was yeah. one of 50 in my class at the time. 50, really? Yeah. I mean, we're looking back in the day, there wasn't an awful lot of opportunity at all. Right. What had happened as well, when we got to the point where we were going to leave school, the amount of opportunity that you had for women was very, very limited. Mm. So I was told I could work in a factory, I could work in a shop, I could maybe get a job in a bank if I was, you know, intelligent enough to do it. Right. But the opportunities for women were very, very small. Mm. And you basically left whatever job you got, you was never going to get the same pay as a man. The pay was completely different, even for the same job. Yeah. You never had the opportunity to put money aside. Now, I had five children, and I've worked full-time with five children. I've only ever taken two years off in the whole of my working career, and that was to look after my oldest boy. Right. I've got children as well who are now going to be working to 70. But the girls these days have got much more of an opportunity to get a better education, to get a better job, to able to get equal pay, and to put money away for their pension. We didn't have an opportunity to put money away for a private pension. The money just wasn't there. No, of course not. We barely scraped enough money to actually feed the kids and put a roof over their head. And then when I get to 58, I'm told, oh, hey-ho, we've advertised somewhere, although I honestly can't ever remember seeing any advertisements mm. that have told me I'm going to have to work another six years. Nobody told and you that, did they? Nobody, nobody actually mentioned it. And it came as a bit of a shock because I'd never actually put any extra money away for this pension. But how it actually affected me really badly was a couple of years ago, and it's still going on with my dad, but my mum was dying. Mm. She desperately, desperately wanted to come home. Now, I'm 63, so I was 61. Yeah. In the real world, I was brought up in where I was told I would be retired. I would have had mum at home. I had to go there every night after doing a 10-hour shift, look after my mum in the hospital, 
get home at half past nine, ten o'clock at night, get up the next morning and start again. Because I couldn't afford to take time off of work to actually look after her. Yeah. And that goes right the way back to when the kids were growing up. When I had my babies, it wasn't the, the same type of maternity pay and you can take six months off and go back to work for, you know, after a year and it'll be on a staged full yeah, pay, Yeah, they keep, the, they keep pay, the job for you, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what they've done, to be honest with you, is that they screwed people my age up right the way along the line from totally. the time that I was actually growing up to the time that I am now. And they've done me out of thousands and thousands of pounds on my pension. My dad's now got leukaemia and the same thing. He's 91, the same thing as applying. I can't afford to actually give up work. Right. And are you still able to keep working? I mean, where you work at the moment, they're still happy for you to carry on working because the trouble for a lot of people as well is that they then get told, well, we don't want you here anymore because you're too old. Exactly. You couldn't you couldn't jump out of one job and go into another. Can you imagine that my age and I'm fairly fortunate with it. I mean, you know, I'm fairly skilled. Yeah. But I couldn't jump out of my job and go to another interview, even no. if you didn't put your age on your CV. When you sit there in front of them, the first thing they think of is, oh, hang on a minute. She's only going to be working for us for three years. Yeah. And I can't actually blame them for doing that. But it's it a terrible place that, that you're finding yourself in, Karen, and many other women like you. I've got a, a tweet here from Jill who says uh, that she's in her 50s and she's been job hunting for a year, background in investment, banking and finance, desperate to work, but can't get an interview. Exactly. Exactly. You cannot get an interview at our age group. And when you do, you can't... You, I cannot physically blame the employers because when you're actually looking at it, would I? If I was interviewing somebody, if I had a whole load of candidates there and one was in their 40s and one was in their 60s, you, you could have to look at it realistically. You've mm. got a, a long-term business that you've got to train people you've got to get them involved i mean i'm in sales and it takes a long time to get to know your customers sure. and, luckily, and how, how long do you think you're going to have to stay in work karen oh i'm going to have to stay in work to 66 67 and i mean i cannot leave physically until i'm 66 which is another three years time my husband's already retired yeah but you know we thought we was going to be retiring at the same time as well he's a few years older than me yeah no. i mean i know people who had planned to, to retire and move you know, sell their house, house in, in London and move down to the, the the south coast and all of that. And that's all had to go on the back burner now because the retirement age has been put back. Yeah, it, it's something that, I mean, if you're lucky enough that you've able to been able to buy a house in London, you can actually use some of the equity from that house if yes. you buy something. For example, from where I live, you're going to have equity there where you could live quite comfortably on what you've you've accumulated from the difference in the house prices. I've bought a house, luckily enough, we saved, we bought a house in Lowestoft, but you've got nowhere to go because the prices are so small in Lowestoft. I mean, you couldn't say, well, we're downsized. Mm. The only thing we could do is to go into a one-bedroom flat somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I've got 16 grandkids now. They wouldn't like me downstairs. <laughs> no, that'd be a bit busy, wouldn't it? Blimey. Well, listen, Karen, thank you so much for calling. It's a fascinating story. It's an awful uh, place to have to find yourself in at the age that you are at because it should be now a time when you're able to sort of wind down a little bit, think about spending time with your grandchildren. But so many women like Karen are in that situation. It's dreadful, isn't it? Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do. 03444991000. Now, uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been reporting in to you uh, from points north, places up in Sheffield, uh, up in near Doncaster, around uh, the north of Nottinghamshire as well, uh, because there's been some terrible flooding that's been afflicting an awful lot of people in that part of the world. Um, and now it would appear that somebody sensible has come up with a plan. There are lots of things that can be done to, pre to pre prevent the flooding from, from getting quite as bad as it did up there, including dredging the rivers uh, and not building houses on floodplains and all of that kind of thing. However, the National Trust have actually come up with a great idea, uh, and this is going on uh, down in the West Country. We're going to speak now to Ben Erdley, Project Manager uh, for the National Trust in Holnicott, because they're going to introduce beavers back into the countryside in order to actually uh, operate as flood defences. Ben, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Uh, so, uh, three pairs of beavers are going to be released into enclosures in Somerset and West Sussex. Um, this is what I would regard as a commonsensical way of dealing with this problem. Yeah, I would agree. I think what we're trying to do is work with natural processes rather than against them uh, and utilise the beaver to, to restore some of those natural processes that we've lost. Uh, and as you rightly say, um, achieve benefits like slowing the flow, storing water, yeah. but also creating really nice habitat for other species. So birds and insects, um, beaver are, are, are a remarkable tool for, for achieving that. Yeah, I mean, they more or less died out in Britain, didn't they, about 300 years ago? So were, have they been reintroduced generally now? I mean, are there lots of them around? Uh, so, so they've uh, been, been reintroduced in Scotland. And there's a few places uh, in England where there's enclosed release, and there's one in South Devon where there's a, a sort of a catchment-wide release. But it's a relatively new approach, Um to, to working with nature to achieve those multiple benefits. Right. Uh, it's important to say that ours is, a, is an enclosed release, so we've got two enclosures at Hunnicutt um, and another one at, um, at Valewood for, for releasing the beaver into um, early next year. Okay. And are they, I mean, are they at risk of, I mean, they died out presumably because they were being hunted by humans for, for all the things yeah. that humans wanted. So, I mean, they're not in danger of being sort of preyed upon by other species or anything, foxes or anything like that. No, well, foxes might take the young kits. So, um, and, and otters might take the young kits as well. Really? So, so the, so the, yeah, yeah. See, so everybody thinks beaver, otters but... are such nice little creatures, but in fact, they're probably <laughs> well, they predatory are, yeah. as much but, as anything else, right? Well, hey, nature red in tooth and claw, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So, so, so otter and, and, and fox and other animals might take take the smaller beaver, but a, but a, but a, a, an adult beaver is, is quite a large animal. You know, they can get up to. Um, Sort of 30, 30 kilos plus. Wow, so, um, that is big. Small, but they're, they're, they're completely um, herbivorous. Um, so they're, you know, they're, 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 their diet is completely plant-based. Okay. So, um, and is this, is, this, is this something that could be sort of rolled out elsewhere? Is it specifically a good place to do it where you're doing it? Or could you do well, it... The, the location we've chosen, I would work with the University of Exeter on, on looking at good places to release them on the estate. Uh, for for them to be catchment wide and to be to be utilised in a in a wider sort of catchment context, there would need to be some kind of policy and financial mechanism framework around that. Right. Because they in the wider landscape, as well as having positive benefits, you know, they would doubt, undoubtedly have other impacts that you might not want to see. Mm. So you know, at, um, such as what? block culverts and well, block culverts, flood roads, things like that. But 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 it's it's fairly minor. But it would be sort of we would have to learn to live with some inconvenience. But right. that inconvenience can be mitigated very easily, but there just needs to be the facilities there to do that. So, and yeah, and I'm looking at a story of the Times in which it says, research by the University of Exeter found that a pair released into a stream in Devon built 13 dams and increased the amount of water stored behind them by more than 1,000 cubic metres, which is... Yeah, the change they have is staggering. Yeah. So they're, 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 they're ecosystem engineers, so when they're introduced into habitat that's 
um, that's not favourable for them, they will modify it so that it suits their needs. So there is that standing deeper water there so they can escape predation right. and access vegetation. And, and they, will, they will store water, slow water, it filters the water, and like I say, uh, produces um, significant habitat for other species right. as well. And do they just kind of continue? I mean, if I mean, is there a, a limit to the number of dams they can build, or a part of their? I mean, do they do they stay in one area, or do they move they're, around? They're, they're, they, once they get comfortable, they, they they will stay in that area. It's the kits that will roam. So when they get to when the kits get to about sort of two or three years old, mum mum boots them out, right? And um, and they will look to find sort of pastures new. So so that's when they will they will they will roam. But they're not prolific breeders at all. Um, and, and 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 their movement through a catchment is, is sort of quite steady. Right. So, would I mean, could you consider maybe putting them into parts of the uh, South Yorkshire where there were problems and, and northern, northern parts of, of Nottinghamshire? I wouldn't like to comment on that particular context because I, I don't have all the information to hand, but certainly for us, um, it's a tool that we're, we're using to help alleviate that sort of flashy... Yes. Um, nature of our catchments, and, and certainly they do they, they do sort of slow the water through through a catchment system, and they store water as well. So it's not just you know with climate change and more extreme weather, you know it's not just sort of floods in in, in the winter time. It's um, it's drought in the summertime as well. And if we're if we're storing more water in the catchment, releasing it more slowly, you know it's got that positive impact yeah. as well. Sounds a great idea. Ben, good luck with it. Thanks very much. We might catch up with you next year after it's been done. Uh, ben Eardley, their project manager for the National Trust at Honicut, uh, down in uh, West Sussex um, as well, um, and down in um, Exmoor in Somerset. Amazing that you could actually use your common sense and go back to nature and go, well, actually, this is quite a good idea. Uh, let's get a few dams built by a few beavers and it won't flood. Marvellous, isn't it? Let's talk to Alan, who's in County Durham. Hello, Alan. Hi, Mike. Great to speak to you. Nice to talk to you. What would you like to say? Yes, the ITV debate at 10 o'clock, I watched that last night. Yeah. And they had uh, Nicola Sturgeon on. And every time I listen to that woman, I can't get over it. I've started to count how many times she says Scotland. Right. <laughs> and in the 14 minutes she was on, she mentioned Scotland 40 times. 40? Really? Yeah. That's and a lot, isn't it? If she's on, you know that Michael Miles quiz show back in the 60s? Yes. Anyone? He had a one-minute yes-no interlude. Was that, no, and, it was uh, that, that what was it called? You would have the um, questions, and if you said yes or no, right. you were out, you know. So the questions were phrased where you had to answer yes or no. Really. Was that the one where he said open the box, or whatever it was? Yeah, similar to that, but they had a yes and no interlude. Right, OK. What, what I was saying was, the, he asks you questions and tries to get you to say yes or no, and if you say that, you're out. Right. If they put her on that and don't mention Scotland... <laughs> I wonder, you know, you give me a great idea, though, because I wonder whether, because I, I don't think that de the, the main debate that I watched last night at 8 o'clock, I, I just didn't think the format worked very well. Maybe what we should have is a question and answer session like that where they have to answer yes or no, because, you know, yeah, they can't, because right. they'll never give you a straight answer. But uh, listening to Nicola Sturgeon, I think she's been, either she doesn't know she's saying it or she's been told to brainwash people that Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. Yeah. It? And it's just so obvious. If you listen to it playing back, I'd be embarrassed if I was her. Forty times. I might have to check that out just because yeah, it's such a big number. Out. Right. In the end, I started counting. I thought, this can't be true. But <laughs> you can't get away from it. I just also mentioned, I, I did see go and see Nathan Farage in uh, Sedgefield. He was at the race course. Oh, there. yeah. And it was £1.50 a ticket, which I thought was, sorry, £2.50 a ticket, which I thought was really good. He just wanted to kind of cover his running costs. He doesn't want to make a lot of money out of it, but... He sounded great, and uh, he's the only politician coming over more honest than everything else I've listened to. And I'm knocking on a bit. I've heard, I've heard politicians for a long time. And this man, 
yes, he's on a cause about getting us out of Brexit. But I feel if he knocked away from these two-party Labour Conservatives all the time, which I've seen for years, I'd just love to see somebody in with a different approach like he's mentioning. Because he does have other policies besides Brexit. But, um, and he seems to be wanting the people in his party who know how to run business and things like that. Well, this is true, I and mean, this is why it does appeal to an awful lot of people. Um, but also, those yeah. people will also say, Alan, thanks very much for your call. You know, it's such a pity that he's not, as much as he says he needs to get Brexit done, and that's why he's doing what he's doing and standing down various members of the Brexit party in various different constituencies. He should maybe run himself, which he still isn't doing. But there we are. Uh, not much more time for us to do anything with, really. We've got about 30 seconds left. It's been another great show. Uh, for all the people that didn't make it, I'm afraid, uh, let me apologise to you. Uh, do call again tomorrow, because we've got... Very, very much to do tomorrow as well. 0344 499 1000. Lib Dems are unveiling their manifesto a little bit later on today. Uh, you'll hear all about that right here, of course, on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.